Welcome to the Heavy Hole Podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle Buck. And we got uh, quite the treat for you tonight. My friend and uh, iconic death metal singer, Frank Rini, call in tonight. Hell yeah. He was uh, in an internal bleeding between 1993 and 1997. He sang on their uh, Voracious Contempt album, which was released in 1995 on Pavement Music, and their Extinction of Benevolence album, which was released in 1997 on Pavement Music. And uh, we got him on the phone tonight to talk about that experience and uh, his his recent uh, appearance on the Bloodletting North America tour, rejoining the, uh, Internal Bleeding as the singer. Yeah, so without further ado, we're going to roll right into that right now. Bing bong. Good afternoon. Hello, Frank. Yes. Can you hear me good? Yeah, I can hear you great, Will. All right, man. Uh, this this is my buddy Tom, uh, who's joining me with the podcast too, man. Uh, Tom, Frank, Frank, Tom. Hey, Frank. Thanks for joining, man. No problem, Tom. Thanks for having me. Of course. All right, man. How's it going, Frank? How you doing, buddy? Yeah, I'm doing well. Uh, we're it's we got a lot of snow coming down over here. Oh wow, wow! Snowed in with the family. Yeah, I was already outside. Did the shoveling, did sledding because I'm a big kid myself. <laughs> and then the snow stopped, and now it's coming back. It's been snowing since yesterday around three o'clock in the afternoon. So it's supposed to snow up until midnight tonight. Jeez, man. Well, all right, man. I, I know you're tired, man. So, so we'll we'll just jump right in because I know you, you're. Uh, this is like football Sunday with the family, right? It's okay. You know, I, yeah. I mean, if you want, we can just keep on talking about snow. It would be really thrilling. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, you know, I got a lot of questions for you, man, so we're just going to start right from the beginning. What part of Long Island are you from, Frank? Um, from Valley Stream. Valley Stream. That's actually the birthplace of Artificial Brain. That's where most of those guys are from and met each other. I know. Wow, I know. man. Yeah, I don't know if, if, uh, if, uh, if the listeners knew any of that, man. Uh, oh, okay. What was your first exposure to uh, like rock music and heavy metal music? Was it a family thing? Was you was your family against it? Uh, you know, wh- where did you first get into that stuff? Um, yeah, it was through my brother. My brother's three years older than me, so um, I would say he. St- it was in uh, it was in the seventies. You know, I remember the Kiss albums. Uh, I I thought that they were good, but. Um, you know, he he had uh, he had Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden, and I I really got into Iron Maiden and Sabbath, and uh, you know at an early age. So I would say I was probably first exposed to the stuff. Um, God, late seventies, and uh, that was that was that was like the Sabbath and the um, uh, Kiss. But then you know, like right around like nineteen eighty eighty one. With Iron Means first uh, two albums coming out, then you know that I was hooked. So it was really the classic metal, um, and Iron Means still to this day are my favorite band. Uh, with uh, Power Slave being my all-time favorite heavy metal album of all time, and then also Black Sabbath are like you know they're they're like neck and neck with the classic Sabbath stuff. Um, but you know, so I was while my brother continued to stay along with like the traditional metal and, you know, you had the early thrash, but like I remember when Metallica first came out and I just continued to get heavier and heavier and heavier into the, you know, the, uh, you know, at that, you know, you'd collect the zines and looking into the more obscure bands and it was just, you know, the, th- the speed metal, the thrash and then the death metal. Um, but I also had a big hardcore background as well. Um, you know, 82, 83, you know, with agnostic front coming out in, New York 
um, I really started getting into them. Um, so, you know, again, I just got heavier into like the death metal scene as the music, um, as all the bands just started coming out and, you know, going to shows, being exposed to more of it. Now, I, you, you, you mentioned your brother. There was a story I read. Um, uh, <laughs> you, did a, you did a Pyrexia interview several years ago, and you mentioned a story about you and your brother uh, heckling Chris from Pyrexia years ago. Oh, well, that wasn't me. That was my brother. Okay, all right. I got it. I got it. You want to set the record straight? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, that would, that, you know, that, that was never, that was not my thing. No, res um, respectfully, obviously, this is years and years ago, man. You know, we're all laughing about it now. Yeah, um, this is, a God, when was this? Um, Pyrexia weren't signed yet. So this, we're talking about uh, 1992. Because the Sermon of Mockery came out in 93. So I remember, um, I think I had a Liturgy of Impurity shirt on. And, we, you know, uh, Pyrexia were opening. Uh, it was at the, I, I want to say it was at the Roxy. Um, I think maybe probably Suffocation was on the bill. I, I have no idea who else was on the bill. Um, and uh, what the hell was going on? You know, they had some sound problems, Pyrexia. And my brother was just acting, he was just acting like being an idiot or whatever. And I just said, you know, I'm not going to mention his name on here. I don't think, I don't think he'd want to know, but you know, but I, he, he, I was like, I was like, dude, I was like, you know, shut up. And he just kept it up. And then like, so then Basile from Pyrexia started like mouthing off to my brother and it was just <laughs> like, and, it, and then, you know, you know, technically that's my blood, you know, my brother's my blood. So then yeah. I go off on, I go off on Basile and then, um, and then that's kind of it. And then, like at the uh, you know at the end of their set or whatever, then Basile and I kind of get into it on the side, like near a bar, uh, near the bar over there. And Doug Cerrito from Suffocation is like get starts getting in Basile's face because uh, Cerrito would see me at all the shows, and he's like, "Dude, you need to stop yelling at one of your fans. He he got he's wearing your fucking shirt." And then Basile <laughs> saw that I was wearing. He's like, "Oh my god!" And I was like, and, and so. It, it was just, you know, it was forgotten about, you know, you know, that's kind of how things were back then, you know, the, you know, there was no fist run or anything like that. And it was just a lot of like, you know, mouthing off John, you know, New York type of shit. Of course. And I asked, I asked respectfully, man, I've been in the same room with you and Basile, uh, you know, in, in the last year, man. And obviously everyone's grown up and friends. You guys were kids. Uh, you know, back then, man, I just thought it was a, a funny story, man, uh, that, that you brought. Very up funny. That, yeah. And then no, man. now we're talking about those old days. Did you ever have long hair, Frank? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I did have long hair. Um, I'm trying to think of when I started first shaving it. Um, probably soon thereafter. Yeah, I was in when, I, when you know I was in college, and then I don't know if it was like my third or fourth year in college. My hair just started getting, you know, started doing all the different designs that back that that used to come out of the '90s, and then I eventually would shave my head, and then grow it back the hair, then shave it, and then. Um, but yeah, no, I had the I had a mullet from the eighties, and then uh, I probably uh, you know got into the short hair like uh, I don't know you know in the early nineties. I even I eventually just you know you know came to the conclusion you know it's time to sh you know cut the hair off. Easy upkeep. <laughs> yeah. oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know the long hair was just a pain in the ass. You know every time you go to the barber and you want it a certain way and it's you know blow drying it and everything, I just finally was like you know I'm done with it. So, so we're talking about those those early days. Were you ever in a band in the early '90s before Internal Bleeding? No, 
So how so um how how does how, how do you come to join internal bleeding man? How do you meet those guys and how does that take off? Um, so let's see. Well, I knew the band. You know, I, I uh, always will tell the tell the story. You know, when internal bleeding was first about to start forming, I was friends with these guys on the island that you know I think I just met them at a show and they would hang out with Bill from uh you know who's you know now of, of course has passed on bill tolly um yeah. so i would meet them at shows all the time and uh you know one of the, our stomping grounds was uh, sparks on long island and uh you know i'd hang out and we, we just got along you know and just in between in, in between like the band sets you know i would let out growls and shit and Bill would say, dude, you got a sicko voice. He was like, you should be in a death metal band. And I said, I, you know, I'm in college. I was like, you know, I, you know, you just never think about that. That's kind of wasn't on my horizon. And um, he was like, you know, I'm going to be, you know, I'm forming a band right now. You know, uh, we're, we're calling it internal bleeding. He's like, you know, I don't know if you want to like kind of try out. And I said, no, I was like, dude, I, you know, I'm in college. I'm going to finish, you know, and he's like, he's like, no, I got it. And I, I'd always, you know, we'd always go to shows together, hang out. And then um, I remember when, you know, eventually when Invocation of Evil came out, yeah, I remember Prevelis was peddling it, uh, you know, the cassette at all at the shows. I bought the cassette from him. Um because you know what did that that came out in 93 i think uh, invocation of evil and i wound up going you know then i eventually went away to school and uh i remember i was taking that took that demo and i would you know play it you know inside and out and uh i think on the 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 day that that came out i think they well when he had the demos with him he was uh in, internal bleeding opened up for sinister i think uh, it was sinister and suffocation were on tour Mm. Um, it was like 92, 93. And then I remember internal bleeding being on the bill Stacked. and, um, great lineup. Exactly. It was really good. And it was, you know, I, I think IB were like the first band on and a bunch of other, you know, bands. And then it was sinister and then there was suffocation. And then obviously, you know, I knew the band, you know, I'd see him at the shows, you know, I'd come back from like a winter break or, you know, summer break, you know, I, I would see them. And then I, I graduated from college in 90, in the summer of 94. And, um, you know, I, at that point, I'd been working at a parks department for about eight years, or probably around that time, maybe it wasn't as long. But um, I, I was, you know, I was a supervisor. And uh, but I was obviously, that's not where I wanted to be. I wanted to utilize my degree because I uh, history, history was my major and minor was philosophy. And uh, so I had been applying for jobs, going on interviews, but really nothing was sticking. And I was still at the park. And then one day I went to the record store, slip disc, because uh, I would pretty much be there every weekend. And I looked up on the board. I remember to this day, you know, I walk in to the left, always had like all these flyers in this glass case of just announcements of tours. Um, yeah, I, rem and, I remember uh, slip disc records and, and yeah. the glass case you're talking about. Yeah, yep. yeah. Uh, and and I, I saw, you know, internal bleeding. Uh, I was looking for a new singer. Um, summer tour is planned. Um, and, you know, I can't remember, like, must have a professional attitude, you know, can't be a, a alcoholic. It was something like that or whatever. So I said, you know what? Let me start writing down that. So I remember Mike Schutzman, the owner of Slip Disc. I said, dude, I was like, you got a pen and a paper, uh, you know, because – 
you know, we didn't have cell phones at that point, you know, to take pictures of something. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. So I, you know, I took it down and then I called Chris and, uh, you know, he, he knew who I was. And I said, uh, he's, you know, we worked out on a weekend that he was going to come over my house, you know, cause I was living with my parents, he comes over to the house and perpetual degradation was just recorded. And uh, obviously it wasn't put out by wild racks yet. And he was like, okay. Um, and at that point I had my college haircut, you know, where, you know, it was kind of long on top, shaved on the sides. And, uh, he was just like, well, this is what, God, what song I'm trying to think of the first song that he asked me to sing. Um, it was, it was anointed in servitude. So he's like, I need you to, I need you to learn this song. And I think he said, I want to say I had about a week to learn it. And he was like, you know, and then, you know, you're going to come in and practice with us. And, you know, let's just see how it goes. And we heard he and I would talk and he was kind of almost like quizzing me a little bit because he was asking me, you know, because we didn't we we didn't really know each other, knew each other. But it was, you know, um, so he was just kind of asking me some of the death metal bands that I was into. So he was like, oh, no, no, that's that's, you know, that's that, that's awesome. And so I went in uh, to their uh, recordings and at the recording studio, I went to the practice space and. I, um, the, you know, the entire band was there and I had never sang into a microphone before. I had never, um, you know, cause I was practicing at home. I was, uh, you know, I was learning and it was, it was tough and my vocals were, you know, a little rough and I kind of was breaking up the vocals in terms of how I, you know, the stop and starts parts were, uh, were coming in and, um, just kind of like things that would, I could memorized on my own um and i went in there i believe i knew the lyrics pretty much i had memorized them i, I think i probably still had them with me on my hand just in case i forgot something and so i did the song and they said okay great let's do it again great let's do it again <laughs> and uh um myola anthony myola uh guitarist the second guitarist and bill um, they kept on pushing me to hold out growls longer because Bill had done the vocals on Perpetual. So they were like, you know, kind of try, trying to enunciate it like this or do it like that. I said, okay. Um, and then, uh, then, uh, you know, the, you know, the practice was over and then it was, you got to learn. And Chris was like, you know, I want you to learn profit of the blasphemes. I was like, okay, come back next week. I was like, okay. So <laughs> I did that again. And, but, but really by the, you know, once I was in there and like playing with them, it, I really liked it. It, it was kind of weird because, you know, they knew each other and I'd never done something like this before. Um, so I learned profit, went back. It was the same, same drill growls, you know, longer, you gotta hold them longer. And, um, but, uh, I think then I went, I don't know if I'd learned, I think that was it. I don't think I'd learned anything else just yet. Uh, I, I went back, we, you know, I practiced again with them and then they were like, okay, we want to talk to you. I was like, okay. <laughs> so it was like almost like an interview like that you had, cause it was like a big, um, it was a warehouse where the studio was and uh, there were other bands that would practice in there as well. And they would, you would walk out of there and it was kind of like a sitting area where, you know, you'd hang out. And I remember there was a couch in front of me and I was sitting in a couch and in front of me, it was Pervelis sitting next to him was Guy Marseille, Marches from uh, Pyrexia. And, um, 
they just were, you know, guy was asking me a bunch of questions. Chris was asking me a bunch of questions. And then, um, you know, so, like, so guy was in internal bleeding at that point. No, 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 no. no. But since, uh, you know, he was such a, uh, you know, they, everybody was friends. He was, um, so he was almost like a consultant for your band I, interview. Yeah, I, I guess you, I guess you can say he was like a consultant. Yes. <laughs> you know? And and just the the way you describe this place was this by any chance the A Room Studios in Hicksville? I know internal bleeding was big there in the nineties. I don't know if this is before that though. It, I think it may have been. I think mm -hmm. so. It sounds familiar. Uh, across the street was like a like a that's a mall warehouses in the city area. There was like pit bulls and rottweilers and like this <laughs> like one area. You never wanted to go in that area. Um, but they were like you know. Um, you, all the uh, internal bleeding you, fans are, are really glad to hear that right now. That's that's exactly yeah. what people picture. That's awesome. It, exactly. And then they were like, uh, okay, you're uh, you know, Chris is like, dude. Uh, we want you to be the singer. I was like, really? And they're like, yeah. I was like, okay. And uh, it was like, you know, you learn the rest of the the, the demo. Got to learn this stuff off of uh, Invo. Um, and like the Midwest tour was like in a few weeks after that. And I think the next practice um, I had, I had shaved my head. And I remember going in there. And at that point, nobody was shaving their head. This is 94. Um unless you were like in a, in a hardcore band. So, you know, with the death metal scene, that was kind of, a, it w wasn't really happening. So they were like, I remember when they first saw me, it was Guy, like Prevelis, and you were like, I remember Prevelis was like, dude, man, that looks so fucking sick. He's like, <laughs> holy shit. He's like, oh my God. Um, but, you know, I had already been going to shows every so often. I'd shave the head, I'd be there. But, you know, now they're like, oh my God. So I was like, yeah, and then we, uh, <sighs> I think I learned what what were the songs for? We, it was um, it it was anointed and servitude, prophet of the blasphemes and human suffering, um, and then off of Invo, uh, it was despoilment of rotting flesh. Um, I'm trying to think. Gutted human sacrifice, epoch of barbarity, and. That was it. That's all we had time to teach me and get the timing down, um, because the the it was a Midwest tour, which basically my my first show was at an was at a festival. It was in Ohio. Um, you know, we were playing with like Embalmer and Drugheta and Ton, and uh, I remember right before we went on how nervous I was, and uh, it was. You know, I remember after the show, you know, the band just came up to me. I'd be afterwards in the parking lot. They're like, um, you know, they were just blown away. They're like, this is fucking so sick. You're, you're going crazy. He's like, this this is what we've been looking for. Um, but that's that's the gist in terms of how I got into IB. Well, and, well, and uh, I'm glad you I mean, I could keep on talking about that whole <laughs> that whole summer because we wound up getting signed by Pavement Records. But, I'll, you know, we go you know well be you know, you before before we jump ahead because i got all that i got i got i got notes on you like the cia right now man before we before we get into that um i'm glad you brought up that thing about the the hairstyle because people might might have thought before when i asked you if you ever had long hair that i was uh, a little out of pocket with that it's a weird question but back in, in um those days in the metal scene with the hardcore and the metal scene and things what they were long hair and shaved heads were a little bit more of a contentious point right yes yeah, yeah pe people got into fights over things like that a lot right Oh, oh, totally. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, it's a different different environment. So so you you joined Internal Bleeding basically um, uh, to 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 do this tour with them. Uh, was that with the understanding that you would now be the front man or just like a fill in guy for the tour? See how it goes. No, as soon as after that one practice, after like a, a few of the practices, you know, basically they told me, Frank, as soon as you came in and sang, even though that you'd never picked up a mic before, we knew that you were the singer. And Chris will tell you that to this day. He's like, I, I knew right then and there that you were our singer. He was like, but we had to keep on pushing you and see if you were going to keep on coming back. And he's like, what happened was you kept on getting better and better. And we saw the dedication in there. So when, you know, they sat, when he sat, when they sat down with me and said, we want you to be our singer, it was with the understanding I'm the new internal bleeding singer. So it wasn't like, you know, it, it, this is kind of like, you know, you're just a fill-in for the summer. Um, Internal Bleeding didn't have a singer. You know, they, they you know, I was trying out, I guess, at the time with a whole, with a bunch of other people. I don't know who they were. Um, but it was, you know, once they offered it to me, it was the, it was, you know, you're our singer. Now, when you joined for that, for that tour, I, I'm, I'm bringing up something now from a very old interview from a, um, an old uh, zine, um, Mortal Coil zine, the black and white photocopy zine from the 90s, actually, man. I read an old interview with you, Frank, and it said something about you bringing a cooler on tour in the old days, and it was too big yeah. for the van or something, man. The other guys didn't like that, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I got to eat. <laughs> <laughs> now, so yeah, I had a cooler of food and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so you you now on this I I was uh fortunate enough I was I was filling in for Pyrexia and I I spent a few weeks on the road with with you um on this last bloodletting North America tour right. and you made a point of um telling me to to eat bananas. Right. Uh you I know you were drinking a lot of milk. You had you had a a, a routine. So it's just it's it's interesting to know that even back in the day you had the cooler and you were about your business, man. You weren't, you know, you weren't messing with all those road hot dogs and whatever else, right? Fred Flintstone, exactly. Always, you know, you know, bagging your brand, you know, brown bagging it. Um, you know, I mean, on the road, it's easy to eat bad food, and I do. You know, I mean, it happens, but, um, you know, I had a, I had a certain regiment back then that worked for me. You know, honey, chocolate milk, um, that type of stuff. Um, but as I've gotten older, um, especially. Once I started getting back into shape for this whole the whole tour and everything, um, one of the things I started reading about is like, you know, people who do marathons, you know, one of the things that they're giving, you know, several times in between the stops are bananas, um, because while you're working out, you know, in terms of bananas, how it, it, it uh, helps with your potassium and magnesium levels, um, because those are some of the things that, you know, you wind up rapidly losing while you're doing a lot of exercise. So since I was doing a lot of exercise myself with tons of cardio and lifting to get back into, you know, tour shape. You know, as I've gotten older, I get I was getting these leg cramps on my calves in the middle of the night while I was sleeping because I wasn't eating enough potassium. And I wound up starting doing some Internet searches and found out that, you know, men, as they get older, <laughs> you can get, you know, these muscle cramps if you if you're lacking in, you know, these vitamins and minerals. And with me doing all the working out and everything, I was like, you know, I need to make sure that my body is replenished. So, um that was one of the things that I was incorporating back, you know, at home, but then also on the tour as well with, you know, eating, you know, I'd, you know, I eat two, probably about two to three bananas a day um, because, you know, with, you know, between, you know, doing all like the, the exercise, you know, doing all the moving around on stage and in the pit that I was doing and using up all that energy, um, 
it, it, you know, this, it was, it really helped me out. Yeah. And it really, and, it really helped me out. And plus it's not, you know, <laughs> when you think about it, you know, I mean, and you know, you shouldn't be eating three bananas a day, you know, but you know, in terms of what we were doing, it, it really worked out. And it's obviously in the long run, it's healthier than, you know, eating like, you know, a bunch of meatball sandwiches, you know, three times a day. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, we're going to get into, um, all the preparation you did, uh, for this, this latest tour, but, um, initially speak with the, the reputation that you kind of had to get back in shape to live up to was back in the day you were known for as you said holding out these very long growls uh longer than a lot of other people were doing at, at that point and also for your your moves on stage man you were you were dancing and um kind of doing doing maybe what people associated more with like hardcore singers or something man than, mm -hmm. than death metal back in the day man and you were um yep. You were kind of a no notorious for that. Is that something you did consciously? It just kind of came up, or you know, how how did how did you get get known for that? Um, it was more stuff. You know, when I was younger, I guess I, I, guess I would, you know, younger meaning I don't know, maybe twelve or thirteen. You know, I took up guitar, and uh, I, I was I was playing guitar for a, a short period of time, and I was more. I, uh, you know, I could hear the music and then play it. So I can remember a few songs that I could play a little bit like, you know, Celtic Frost are like one of my favorite bands. So I could play Morbid Tales on the guitar. I could, you know, Slaughter, you know, from Canada, you know, the uh, Strapito albums, like my, that's my favorite Death Thrash Metal album still to this day. And it came out in 85. And I could play a little bit of, um, uh, the song Fuck of Death um, and uh, some of the slower stuff. And, and then I would like kind of play a little bit of hardcore and I would move around with the guitar. Um, and it just kind of came to me to like do like kind of like moshing, I guess you can say that's what, you know, and that's, you know, I don't know. It just kind of came to me. It wasn't like more of like a, cause I'm feeling the music. So in terms of like with internal bleeding, you know, in terms of like just when I was practicing with them and then when I would get on stage, that's, I guess I guess like that's what was in my toolbox in terms of you know like you know doing a little bit of the headbanging but also you know doing a bunch of slam dancing and some hardcore moves because um, like I said while I did grow up with like the metal scene and the death metal and all that other stuff I you know still grew up in New York where I was you know I was a huge hardcore fan. You know, so, I, you know, I'd go to the biohazard shows as well and just totally get into it. So it, with internal bleedings music, there's a lot of groove to it and there's a New York attitude to it. And, you know, while, you know, the band is not a hardcore band, there are definitely some hardcore influences in mm -hmm. terms of the way the groove is. So that's kind of how I felt the music. That's how I, you know, I, you know, as anybody will get into the music in their own way. That's just kind of what I felt. Um kind of fit with their sound and and that was a, a very and and that sound combined with your stage presence and um the, the the total package you you guys did end up signing with pavement music uh shortly after you joined the band yeah that's correct you know that that, that summer tour in 94 we played uh you know we played in ohio we played in illinois actually we we were on we were on the little tour that we were on we were with a band uh, called symphony of grief which were uh, also a wild rags band and they were managed at the time by chris forbes who was running metal core zine and um <laughs> he, and, he uh, came symphony, up in another interview chris forbes yeah, yeah. <laughs> and symphony of grief you know like a i guess kind of a 
like disembowelment from Australia, that type, like a doom death. And then all of a sudden it would like go into like a, a crazy blast. And those guys were rips. They, they, you know, we had, we had a lot of good times with them. Um, excuse me. And then the third show was the Milwaukee metal fest. And, uh, that was, that was crazy. You know, I was like, uh, God, we played, uh, we played a four song set and it was in front of about like 2,500 people. And, um, that's in, in pavement were there. Their, uh, the owner, Mark Nawara was there. And, um, after that show, I mean, that was a crazy show and we sold a ton of merch and it was just, it was just insane. Um, right after that show, I guess in that, the fall of 94, you know, we wound up getting a contract from pavement, uh, cause we had been shopping a bunch of stuff around and, uh, pavement were one of the record labels that came through and that's what, that's who we decided to sign with. And then about a year later, October 10th, 1995, you guys released voracious contempt. Right, which was kind of like a kind of a, a cool tie-in for me doing the bloodletting tour, because the bloodletting tour came in at around the same time, uh, in 2000, you know, uh, 2018, like October 10th. So it was like like the 23, the 23rd year anniversary of when Voracious Contempt came out, and that's when I'm doing the tour with Internal Bleeding. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, now in um. In hindsight, obviously, that's uh, a very iconic, monumental album, and uh, we, you know, we could talk for hours about um, the impact that Internal Bleeding and the New York death metal sound has had on the scene in years since. But tell us about what went into the recording process. What, what do you? Rem- is there anything you remember about the studio? It says I think it was Cove City Sound in Glen Cove. It was recorded at. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, like, just the writing process and the recording process. Anything that stands out to you that that people might not realize? Uh, well, you know, back then, you know, a lot of the times, um, you know, bands would, you know, the songs that were on their demos, they would re-record for the album. So that's what we did. Plus you're on crunch time in terms of when you have to deliver an album. And I believe that the, uh, the record deal was for three albums with them. Um, so it was analog, uh the recording i remember we we um one of the things that we wanted to do was kind of create a live environment we wanted to capture the essence of our live sound onto the record so we i remember pulling in we we were unloading our equipment and i mean because we were looking we we went to a bunch of different studios uh, but this was the one that we felt like the best with when we were talking to the engineer and stuff and uh so I remember one of the things is one of the engineers had said, you know, hey, the, the same time that you guys are going to be in here, one, there's going to be a really famous singer in here as well. And her name is Taylor Dane. Um, he was like, he was so like, Long you know, Island. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's like, you know, and we all knew who she was. I mean, she's a talented lady, you know, obviously, you know, music far removed from what we were doing. But one of the things was, you know, you can't really look at her like, 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 don't like, she's such a big fucking deal that we can't like, basically if you see her, you know, you just kind of, you can do a pleasantry, but you're not there to talk, whatever. It's like, we're like, okay. So um, there we are like moving in our stuff and um, to the studio and I can bill and I, we saw her the one day and she had like a little bit of an entourage and she talked to us actually for a little bit. Um, and she was cool. And it was, it, and you know, that was it. Um, that's probably the only time that we ever saw her. So, uh, and again, this was the first time that I'd ever been 
and it's, you know what? No, I practiced with them before with internal bleeding. Like we were, you know, to give me like an idea of what it was going to be in a studio. And I think we, we recorded, Oh God, I wonder where that recording is. Ruthless Inhumanity, because that was one of the songs off of Invocation of Evil that I eventually rewrote because, um, you know, not a knock on Wallace, but you know what it's like because you have to do it with pyrexia when you're trying to learn somebody else's music. And I couldn't, Wallace was really like, you know, he did a lot of the mic cupping and I, I was having some difficulty understanding his, the like what the lyrics were saying and what he was saying with the phrasing to the rhythmic uh, parts of the song. And it wasn't adding up for some reason it wasn't connecting to me. So I told Chris, I was like, dude, I'm going to rewrite some of these lyrics. So I, I'm, you know, he's like, what up, Frank, but you know, whatever you want to do, I don't care. So yeah. I was like, okay. So I rewrote and then we went into the studio and that was, that gave me an idea of what it's like to kind of simulate a studio experience. So, you know, at Cove city, um, I can remember, you know, for that album, I was listening to a lot of the second clutch album, me and Bill were, cause we, we were kind of like on point with a lot of the same similar types of music like biohazard and clutch and clutch were really getting big around that time. That second clutch album for some reason was really hitting me at the right time during that recording. Um, but it was, you know, it, it was not without its stress, you know, cause I can remember, um, you know, pavement not, you know, cause you know, with the analog it's reels and, we needed like an extra reel for the recording and pavement weren't going to pay for it. So we had to come up with, I don't even remember. I think we all had to kick in like a few extra hundred dollars a piece to get this, you know, to get the extra like reel. And, you know, you know, Hey, you know, you got enough stress going on when you're trying to do a recording. The last thing that you need is something like that. So that kind of cramped our style for a little bit uh, in terms of getting us down in, you know, getting us angry, I guess you can say. Wow. Um, that's that's because, something uh, that you do not deal with nowadays, having to kick in for an extra reel. The kids nowadays do not know about that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, 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 and that really sucked. But we, but we did it. And the recording, you know, I want to say... Uh, you know, the majority of the stuff I did on Voracious, that's the majority of the stuff is in one take. Um, and uh, so we had the six songs um, that were uh, from the demo, uh, from both of the demos, uh, three from each one. So, you know, you had Anointed in Servitude, you had Epoch of Barbarity, you had Gutted Human Sacrifice, you had Prophet of the Blasphemes, Inhuman Suffering, and Despoilment of Rotting Flesh. But as soon as I had joined the band, the band had already started writing new music. Um, so I wound up, I guess you can say the first song that I started writing lyrics for was Languish and Despair. Um, so I, I can't, I'm, you know, I was like, hey, you know, so I'm really not using my college degree now. So let me use it for writing lyrics and things that I had learned. But so Languish and Despair is about... Um, my grandfather who was living with us had passed away while I was in college. So, and I was really close with him. So it was, and he, and he passed away very quickly from cancer, which I'm happy that he did and rather than having more of a prolonged illness. Um, but still, um, so I kind of tied in the lyrics with his suffering and him passing along with the documentary I was watching at the time of like burn victims and how they're treated. So that I kind of like interwove those two stories and that became Languish and Despair. Humanicide was um, Chris and I, we went to go see uh, the movie. I think it was with uh, 
Dustin Hoffman was one of the actors outbreak about like the Ebola virus and shit like that. Yeah, I remember that movie. So, yeah. so yep, that's, so that's what Humanicide is about. Uh, God of Subservience, I wrote. That was more, yeah, it was kind of more like a mobster type of movie influenced by like Goodfellas, um, uh, The Untouchables, that type of stuff. And just basically about not being kept down. But, you know, if, if your whole family was wiped out, you know, being able to rise above, but then going out and seeking vengeance on the individuals that tried to destroy you. Um, and then I'm trying to think of the other, Oh, reflection of ignorance. I kind of had this uh, idea that I talked with Chris over. I was like, I want to do, you know, because there's always racism and things like that. And I was, I'm, you know, uh, very against that. Um, but I, so I came up with the song reflection of ignorance, which is about uh, it's an anti racist song um and then uh you know once we had all the songs in the in the can then it was you know time to record we recorded the album um at that time we were simultaneously seeking out artists to come up with uh something that was going to capture what we felt the songs and the title of the album came up with because the voracious contempt title came up with we were driving back from a, a gig and we were you know oh we got to come up with a with an album name that is going to just like you know invoke the most hatred you know just like killing and destroying you know and um i i said uh uh i think it was me and uh, myola came up with it i said oh man voracious and like really without even missing a blink he's like contempt and then we we're like voracious contempt voracious contempt we're like oh man that sounds really cool and then um i know i'm like flipping around a little bit but then with the album cover we wound up going with this guy i wound up finding this guy who wrote for the new yorker he was an illustrator and um pj lagren and he and i struck up a conversation on the phone a few times he showed me his artwork i was like man this is really <clears throat> not death metal-y i was like but i really like your style so excuse me he um he came up with the album cover and it was beautiful he came over to my house it was all on a canvas and everything and we submitted it to pavement and it was rejected we liked it um the original album cover is excuse me it has it has it had a little bit of a butchered at birth from cannibal corpse influence to it and he he never even heard cannibal corpse but it was like too peculiar it was like these two uh, two gentlemen, I guess you can say, that are in these coats, and they're carving up a lady on a table, and they're just cutting her with like these like knives and forks, not ready to eat, but it was like, and she's and it was all bloody and gory, and it still had the voracious contempt, like the album title logo, how it's written on the regular album cover, uh, but again, Pavement said we are not releasing this. We, this is way too graphic. Um, so we went back to him, the guy, and he was not happy because he's like, do you know how much time I spent with this? I was like, dude, I was like, it's not, it's not us, you know? And he's like, well, I'm, I got to make sure that I get paid for this because I'm doing extra work. And I was like, well, that's out of our hands. That's what paid me. So then he came up with, you know, and I actually still have some of the drawings of like all like the rough sketches and things like that. And I remember there was this one of like, there was almost like a, it almost looked very similar to nuclear assaults game over with like a nuclear atmosphere and people just running and stuff. And it was like a riot and stuff. That was kind of cool. But, um, eventually, you know, he came up with the voracious contempt album cover that, you know, solidified that we solidified, we approved and pavement agreed to it. Uh, but you know, back in the recording, you know, we recorded the album. We all thought it was good. We all really enjoyed it. Um, sent it to pavement. 
and you know this is when it's fully mixed and everything um sent it to pavement pavement hated it um they said they did not like the mix and they had plans and we're like okay uh what does that mean and then really it was it wasn't even so much to take a breath will they part of the thing and, and hey i love all the more sound recordings you know the, again i followed the scene as it was growing with each genre each scene in each area of like the united states and all across the world you know that's what a you know, maniac i was so uh, but they they wanted their they wanted their scott burns stamp on it so they shipped the recording to scott burns nary not even asking any of us to be down there um which we wanted to be, you know, because we were trying to figure out, like, you know, who's it going to go? You know, is it going to be, you know, one of us, two of us, five of us? You know, who's it going to be? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, somebody should have been there. Now, I'm not here to badmouth voracious contempt. I'm very proud of it. I'm not one of those individuals who say, oh, yeah, it could have been better. Hey, for the time period and everything that we had available to us, I'm very happy with it. Um, however... And- However, you know, they they just show you they give all the stuff to Scott Burns. Scott Burns is trying to do what he can without even a band member there. So, um, you know, he you know, you know, so it's got a bit of a Mars sound production to it in certain respects, which, you know, uh, hey, I I am happy with it. Um, But um, there are. You know, because, you know, you know, as musicians, we're perfectionists. We know how our music is supposed to sound. We we were there at the recording. I can tell you, I can tell you all the mistakes on Voracious Contempt. Uh, yeah, um, there's, yeah. ton, there's, there's a ton of mistakes, but that's okay. You know, from, uh, from an insider's uh, perspective. And, and just to clarify for our listeners, you're talking about you, you, you shipped these reels to your label. Your label then shipped these reels down to Florida for Scott Burns to work on. And you and your bandmates are in a dilemma because one of you has to physically travel from New York to Florida to, to take part in and oversee uh, this mixing process. Otherwise, you have no part in it. Just because technology has come so far nowadays, people might not realize that that was the case back then. That was the case back then. Yeah. But again, we were not we, we were not even given the ch- opportunity to be down there with him. Wow. It was all, you know, so it's it, uh, obviously I think, you know, things would have been a little bit different sounding, you know, we think that some of the uh, issues on Voracious would have been would not have been there. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's 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 how it came out. Um, but it's funny, like when we played the Milwaukee Metal Fest that following year, Voracious wasn't out yet. But our song from Voracious Contempt, it was Humanicide, was on the Milwaukee Metal Fest sampler CD. And it's the original mix and master before Scott Burns got to it. Um, so that's out there. But I still wow. have the I still have the original recording on a cassette. Um, and you know, if we ever do a deluxe edition, which I'm sure we will, we'll have to remaster because we want to, you know, we want to remaster, uh, extinction of benevolence and voracious contempt. Uh, unfortunately we can't remix because the original stuff is lost, but, um, uh, you know, as a deluxe, you know, I, if we ever want to, you know, Hey, CD number two is the original recording of voracious contempt. And it's a little bit looser. It's, um, guitars are guitars and vocals. No, I'd say drums and drums and vocals are louder in the mix. Um, but you know, and I recently listened to it probably about a year ago. I listened to it. I whipped it out. Cause yes, I still have a cassette deck. And, um, I will say that 
by and large, when I take each point and for what each recording is, I do feel that the Scott Burns is actually the better. But right. they, they are different. Okay. They, they, are, they, are, they are different. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And I'm sure if that uh, that package with the bonus material was ever released, I, IB fans would be psyched, man. No, but, um, but the original release of the album, um, after, after that comes out, you mentioned Milwaukee Metal Fest. What other kind of touring and traveling did you guys do to support that album? So we wound up... Uh, um you know, at that point, you know, we're playing one-off shows. We're going to Canada for a weekend. Um, and then we we knew that Pavement were working on a tour, and they offered it to us, and they said, hey, we want to get you guys on tour with Immolation and Six Feet Under. They're like, you know, Six Feet Under just came out with their Haunted album and uh, their debut. And, uh, you know, we knew Immolation because, you know, you know, you know, they're in New York, and mm-hmm. we met them before, obviously. Um so we're like, yeah, yeah, great. So that that following Milwaukee Metal Fest, the the next year, '95, I remember going up to Chris Barnes um, and talking to him, and I was like, you know, I was like, yeah, I know Pavement, Dave, we're gonna be touring with you guys in a few months, and you know, Pavement, uh, they sent you the album, and he's like, yeah, he's like, yeah, it was good. He's like, yeah, that's the album with the real long intro, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, it was a kind of like carnival music. That's you know, kind of something that we developed, and he's like, yeah, yeah, he's like, it'll be cool, and um, so that was the tour. You know the uh, the, the uh, total fucking contempt tour is uh, that's what we did to support Voracious Contempt. Again, we played little one-off festivals here and there, but you know the Voracious one was the big one. You know, did we want to go overseas at the time? Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, we don't feel like you know um, I, the 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 label didn't push the band like it could. You know, we could have gotten we could have gotten overseas, but they never they never offered the band any European tours. They weren't shopping us around, um, which uh, you know sucks. So, uh, so you were actually um, support, one of the supporting bands on on Six Feet Under's first North American tour for Haunted. Yeah, it was uh, it was us, Immolation, and and uh, and uh, Six Feet Under. Six Feet Under, Immolation. They shared they shared the tour bus. We were schlepping around in the van huh. in a trailer where we had the equipment. You know, we had um, we had uh, Immolation's equipment in the back as well, and um, and that was you know. And then when, when we went to Canada, Immolation couldn't get into Canada, or maybe they had an issue with one of the band members. So mm-hmm. when we played the Canadian dates, we were the direct support to Six Feet Under. And then um, when we came, the last show was a Long Island show, and we had worked it out with Immolation. We just basically said, "Listen, you know, the fans are going to really want to. They're, they're psyched to see us on this tour. You know, we want to. We want to go on before Six Feet Under, and uh, you guys would, you know, kind of open for us. And Immolation were cool. They're like, "Yeah, sure, yeah, that, that's great." So, um, what yeah, you- that was the. That was a great tour. Do you do you remember? Uh, I mean, I was very young um, at that point, but that you know that was obviously a, a kind of a controversial split when Chris Barnes left Cannibal Corpse and all that, or, or whatever happened with that situation. Do you remember? Was there any adverse reaction to Six Feet Under, or what was the what was the climate? Was anyone addressing that issue at the at the shows? Any reaction from fans in regards to that? Um, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that was real big news, you know, back then. Of course, then, yeah. You know, um, and for me, the Holy Grail are the first four Cannibal Corpse albums. Um, you know, I just worshipped them. With Tomb of the Mutilated is my overall favorite Cannibal Corpse album, and was I against 
you know, another singer for Cannibal Corpse? Absolutely. But when I found out that it was Corpse Grinder, I was like, you know, and again, I was like, hold on. My memory serves me correct. That I was like, that's the motherfucker who sang on the Monstrosity Imperial Doom album. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's like one of my favorite death metal albums. I was like, man, that's pretty cool. Um, and, you know, uh, so, yeah, there was a lot. But, you know, you'd be on the tour and people would say certain things or whatever. But, you know, Six Feet Under, they had a good crowd. You know, the the, the, the shows were packed. Um, you know, we, we brought the house down. It was it was wonderful. Um, I, you know, I, I, hey, it's kind of interesting that we, you know, you bring that up because where there's different types of bands at different time periods that kind of influence then a new genre really at that point other than like obituary you know i guess you can call it like a, a workman's type death metal i mean you had jungle rock still who were still developing you know six feet under kind of they kind of developed a bit of a sound you know that a sound and style that you know he's had a successful career chris barnes i mean if you think about it you know that album also came out at the same time as voracious i mean 1995 and for me that's actually my favorite six feet under album is their first album mm-hmm. um but um so it was uh it, it did kind of influence a type of genre i guess and uh you know the band is still around yeah so um you know and and cannibal corpse you know i i uh you know i didn't know and nobody knew what it was going to be like with george in the band and then we played with them on the vile pour um and it was like 96 97 something like that and i had a chance to you know speak to george um and you know because you'd always i've always i'd always heard stuff about him and one of the things that you always heard is that you know this guy's like in this well-known death metal band, but he's like really supportive of all these other bands and he wears all these other bands shirts and he's just really down to earth. I was like, let me see if this shit is real. And I pulled him aside. Um, We hadn't even gone on yet. And he and I were just, we chatted for, I don't know, maybe about 10 minutes or whatever. One of the coolest motherfuckers I've ever met. So down to earth, so approachable and so supportive and enthusiastic about the scene and just being there. Um, and I was just like, you know what, you know, you know, all the rumors are true. I was like, that guy, that guy's really cool. And that was a, it was a great show for us. Um, and you know, I followed cannibal corpse since then, you know, and vile is a great album. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm still, I still love them. And I think that they're still a great, but you know, during that time period, you know, back then, you know, yeah, there was a lot of people that were, you know, talking, and I, I think it was a lot of people that were still hoping that there was going to be some sort of reunion. Yeah, that yeah. this is only going to be like maybe a temporary thing. They're still but holding I their guess, breath. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess it, things really gelled for them, and, and I guess you know, kind of like the whole Max Cavalera Sepultura Soulfly type of debacle. I'm still waiting for the Cavalera brothers to get back with Andreas Kisser and um, Paulo Junior and just do it, man, do it big one time. But but um but enough about other bands getting back to uh, your tenure and internal bleeding man so you guys uh, did that tour with six feet under you did some regional shows milwaukee metal fest and then at some point you started recording your extinction of benevolence album at gateway sound in west babylon new york mm-hmm. um and you know anything in particular stand out about that recording process uh, oh, oh boy yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a, this is an old boy <laughs> um at this time, I had relocated down from um, New York to, to Maryland. 
um i was still in the band so you know when there were shows i'd go to the shows um and then i was practicing you know at home as well with the extinction stuff and i was experimenting a lot with my voice at that time to do growls longer then i started doing like you know even more types of gutturals and different types of sounds experimenting started implementing more like a hardcore shouting tough guy type of death metal vocal um tone on certain parts as well as keeping my signature uh tones as well and uh but it was a little rough for me you know i'd go up to new york practice you know i'd be staying with my folks and stuff like that and you know hey at that point you know we weren't practicing as much so the timing wasn't always there you know it was it wasn't perfect it wasn't spot on mm-hmm. um because at that point you know i was kind of i had a lot of other things you know i was on a career path at that point trajectory um but then when it was time to record the band had recorded the music and then i came in to record the vocals which the vocals we did those in two days um we we decided to do digital at that point um so we 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 were recording and uh it was the recording was a little well well one of the things that i didn't like was you know uh my you know myola had put like these 808 bass drops on extinction of benevolence because he was really into like he like you know he was very um he definitely had a diverse types of music style um but he was really into like kind of like some of the rap at the time that had like those heavy 808s and where i i where i like I'm sorry. I was just. I just had to met very ahead of his time because that's a big slam thing nowadays. But go ahead. So not to interrupt. It, totally. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, and you know, working in parts of the album, it definitely hits big. But like, it was all over the album. And at that point, the stuff was recorded, and they couldn't even take the stuff out because I I offered my two cents. I said, "There's too much of these fucking bass drops." <laughs> I, I you know, I'm not. You know me, and I'm not. I'm not one to hold back. I said, I was like, "Why is it on like every single fucking like drop to a slam?" It's like you did it, boom, boom, and it's like boom. I was like every like you know, that's what it was. So then doing my vocal, I was like, okay, whatever. This is what it is. I gotta go record my vocals now. So I'm recording the vocals, and one of the you know, um, you know, we're you know, we try, you know, what what it's like, you know, being a musician, you're trying to be perfectionist. You don't like something, you want to re-record it or whatever. Yeah. And the guy was a nice, the guy Nick. He was a real nice guy, but it started getting a little bit contentious when. He said, nah, Frank, it's okay. I was like, nah, I don't really like it. I was like, I think I can do I, I know I can do better. Um, he's like, yeah, I think it's okay. And we went back and forth. And then he finally said, you know, Frank, I'm recording this album for free right now because Pavement Records still has not even paid me. And, uh, and, so, and we knew at that point that Pavement still hadn't paid them. And I said, I, man, I'm so sorry, but, you know, I can't do anything about that. You know, I, that's, you know, that, that's a contract between you and them. And he was just like, well, Frank, technically, I don't even have to record your vocals now. Wow. I said, well, there is a contract there and I'm sorry about that, but I'm here to record my vocals and I'm here to do another take now. So we're going to do another take. And so we did it. Um, but, I, you know, I'm very happy with the way that album came out. That album is more like a, it kind of gets overshadowed in some respect because, I left before that album came out and it was a lot of bullshit. You know, the album was delayed in it coming out. Um, and then the guy, the, he still hadn't been paid. One of the reasons why it got delayed is he still hadn't been paid. So he didn't release the music, the pavement. Mm. 
So then eventually he got paid. Um, he, you know, and then it, it came out, I believe it came out the fall of 97. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very, very proud of that album. Extremely proud of it. Um, I, but I did, I left internal bleeding before the album came out. Um, because of, again, at that point in my life, in terms of the type of work that I was doing and going up and up, up to New York a lot and the type of shift that I was on, it was really, it was wrecking havoc on me because mm-hmm. I was working, I was working midnights at that point. And, um, it just, it, it just, it, it, it just was, it was, it was not working out. So I, uh, you know, sat down with the band, I sat down with Chris and, uh, and you know, I left. And and what was your um, you did you keep a connection to the death metal scene uh, throughout those years? I, I imagine it must have been hard for you to leave. Very hard. Um, but uh, I had other goals in mind at the time that were not music related. It was more about uh, professional growth and development as you know in terms of what i was doing for a living and then eventually you know eventually getting married mm-hmm. um but you know i know i still went to the shows um you know uh, i still kept in touch with people um but i wound up you know you know ib were a little bitter at the time um you know and there was a period of time you know we didn't we didn't talk for a while mm-hmm. um you know years and then you know then we did <laughs> <laughs> i mean it, no, it didn't happen like like for the bloodletting tour i mean i've yeah. been I, yeah. I i've been you know in touch with them for for years and years and years but I, at that point you know that was you know once i left it was i guess you know they, they were they were not happy about it um but you know, to this day, Chris will say, you know, he respects me for what I was doing at the time and leaving in terms of knowing when it was time to go and things that I had to do. But at that time, when you're in the emotional moment, you mm-hmm. know, of course, it, it, it's it's different. Which you know, I, I I see that point of view as well. And and you mentioned a lot about um, personal growth and your family and your wife. Uh, how how did your relation to the extreme themes, uh, lyrical and and otherwise in death metal, change as you got older and had a family of your own? Did uh, did your perspective on on death metal change at all, or is it always just entertainment? Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's 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 an art form. You know, music is an art. So, um, but. I, you know, I don't wear women violence shirts, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you got a lot of like the porn grind um, or some of the slam bands that have um, a lot of like violence against women on their album covers and the album inserts. Um, And, and, you know, some of the, there's a lot of Midwest U.S. bands that are, you know, that have that type of imagery as well. Wake up Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I'm not (laughs) going to mention any bands, but you know what? I'd never actually been, even when I was, you know, even back in the nineties, I, that was never a theme that I ever like aligned myself with. Uh And you know, that's what the band, that's kind of what they want to do. That's fine. You know, but that for me, that's not. So, um, 
you know, so sometimes nowadays, you know, if somebody wants to send me a shirt or something like that, one of the things, the caveat is, hey, as long as there's no like curse words, <laughs> you know, because I have kids and yeah. there's no there's no women violence. Um, I'm cool with it um, because that's just, you know, especially, you know, one of my kids, you know, I, I have a daughter, you know, that's just not something that I support. Of course. Um, yeah. And I'm not going to wear that. No. Um, but, you know, in terms of like the lyrical content, you know, hey, if you ever want to see some fucked up shit. So if Extinction of Benevolence, you know, at that time, you know, my girlfriend and I who were dating, you know, we we broke up, you know, my fiance, who she's my wife now, but, you know, you know, have relationships, got ebbs and flows. But so I was writing lyrics during a portion, a lot of Extinction that I wrote because I wrote. It's you know, you know, there's only a few demo songs off of there that were left over from like the other two demos. The rest is all new stuff. But um, so a lot of the lyrics that I was writing are very personal on that album, and a lot of rising up above things. But some of the lyrics are pretty violent as well. Uh, but the song "Plagued by Catharsis" is about a lot of the stuff that was going on with my wife and I. I mean, my girlfriend and I, we'd broken up. And there's a lot of like hatred in those <laughs> lyrics and, and my vocal tones. So when the album came out, you know, we were, her and I were back together. And, um, you know, in 97 or 98, I, I don't remember when we got back together, maybe in 98 or something like that. Um, I gave her the CD. I said, hey, want you, I went, you know, while we're sitting here, I want you to read Plague by Catharsis. And she starts reading it. And she's like, man, this is some fucking hatred lyrics. That, that's a, I was like, and I looked at her. I was like, that song's about you. <laughs> and she's like, oh, thanks a lot. I was like, well, you, hey, I, I got to say thank you for the inspiration. <laughs> wow. So that's the, the polar opposite of a love letter. That's the- yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, um, so now your uh, extinction of benevolence is released, and their um, internal bleeding has a succession of replacement singers: Ryan Scamenti of Disfigured, Ray Lebron of Immortal Suffering, and and so on. A lot of other people come through the band during those those years where you're working on your personal growth, your career, your family. You 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 obviously still have uh, one foot in the scene. You're watching what's going on. And you're watching a lot of bands um, explore the NYDM sound that you guys pioneered with, uh, like like Devourment, Vomit Remnants, and then you know in the early 2000s we got like the the kind of the start of the full on slam genre, things like that, and that deathcore and metalcore start taking from that. What do you what do you think? Did you ever think that slam would kind of um, uh, take off like that in so many different directions? No, I did not. Um, and I was a big, you know, especially when the deathcore scene hit, when that first job for a cowboy EP came out, Doom, um, I was not a hater, you know, and I was following the scene, you know, with all of the, you know, you had a lot of the, the bands were coming up at that point. I Declare War, The Acacia Strain, Amure. I mean, Amure is still one of my favorite bands. Um, so... I and, you know, with the other types of like the slam death and, you know, the Russian slam scene and, you know, devourment, you know, you hear this or that, you know, this band is poached internal bleeding sound or whatever, you know, at the end of the day, somebody's going to steal somebody's types of fucking music or or try and use it as an influence. I took it as more of a compliment that somebody would want to, you know, come kind of maybe emulate part of the band sound into what they were incorporating i guess the issue is then you know some of these bands have maybe achieved greater success in certain areas than maybe internal bleeding and maybe that's the part where i get a little bit of contentious with but i'm like at the end of the day i don't you know will i got too many other things to worry about i don't give a fuck i'm like you know what you know it's 
I just love music so much yeah. that I, I, I don't get mired in all that because if I did, I'd be, a, I'd be a nut job. I'd, I'd go crazy, go crazy about like, Oh, they, they, they stole this. And no, th- there are definitely some bands. I, I hear riffs and I was like, Oh, you can tell that that's an internal bleeding riff or that's <laughs> an, that, that's maybe a vocal element that I would do or something like yeah. that. You know what it does? It makes me smile because the scene is continuing. Who am I? You know, if somebody wants to, put that in there more power to them i don't Mm -hmm. i don't care as long as the music the 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 scene is still continuing i'm cool with that well i think that's a healthy attitude and it sounds like you're very grounded with uh what you said about your family and your career and all that and um just death metal is a a passion and a form of entertainment and uh, a kind of a community for us you know so we can't always let our uh can't get caught up in, in um, ego. But on, on that note, ha- in those years, you know, after 1997, were you ever recognized at a show or somewhere in public as the uh, the, the ex-singer of Eternal Bleeding by a fan? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it would happen. It would happen. You know, you're Frank. I was like, yeah, yeah. Can, I, <laughs> can I have an autograph? I was like, yeah, sure. You know, and it, it happens periodically. It's 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 funny. It, it you know, uh, especially with this tour, everybody who wanted to take pictures and do autographs and stuff like that. It was it was very heartwarming too. Yeah, and um, so so speaking of this tour. Um, I just wanted to cover some some uh, some history first before we got into that. But um, 2018, uh, you do the guest spot um, on Corrupting Influence, right? Right. And um, you were you were talking in advance, uh, several months in advance. I I know now, uh, and it was kind of like top secret that you were going to come back and do the tour, and you were just working out the terms and everything, right? And you were in heavy heavy preparation for the for the tour. Uh, all, all those things correct. Yes. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? I know you had like an intensive uh, workout regimen and uh, lyric memorizing regimen that you told me about that that was um, like like Herculean to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, you know, it was it was April of 2018. Um, I get a call from Chris. Yeah, he well he texts me. He's like, "Hey, can we talk?" I was like, "Yeah, sure." So he calls me up, and it starts going. You know, the usual pleasantries because we're usually in touch a lot. And Chris has used me a lot over the years for some advice about internal bleeding and certain directions and certain, uh, you know, some business decisions. I guess you can say. Yeah. Um. So he's always trusted me. <clears throat> so I, uh, I, I kind of knew where this conversation was kind of headed. And uh, just kind of by some of the things he was putting out there. And he's and one of the things was like, you know, you always said that um, if you ever could tour again, it would be maybe two weeks at most. Um, and there's this opportunity. And he told me he started telling me about the bloodletting tour. And he said, whatever you want, you want to do the first two weeks or the second two weeks of the tour. You let me know because um, Joe can only do half of the tour. So he's like, this would be awesome. He's like, Frank, people go ballistic if you can come back out there. He's like, but, uh, you know, I know that you got to probably, you know, sort some things out with your wife and um, and your job and all this other stuff. And I said, uh, well, you know, I was like, because he knows that I, you know, in terms of being still with the scene and stuff, you know, with doing some of the writing that I do, but also doing guest spots on albums every year. Um, you know, I, I, I did share 
with him, like one of my concerns is like, you know, Chris, it's one thing that for me to like, you know, bump out a bunch of vo- guest vocals for like a band, because it doesn't take me, you know, it only can take me a few weeks to get my vocals back in shape. I was like, but to do a full tour, I was like, you know, Chris, I you know, put on, I put on weight, you know, I haven't been hitting the gym. Um, you know, family life has taken over and uh, I don't know if my vocals are going to be able to come back to the point where I can do a tour. And he said, you know, probably trying to pump me up but he was like you know frank 85 percent arena is better than what's out there now the majority of what's out there now <laughs> so he's he was like you know i was like well i give me some time will i got off the phone i knew i was going to say yes but i just didn't know when so i had chris on edge for a little bit because every few days he's like frank did you make a decision i was like no um but uh the first person i actually told was my brother-in-law and my brother-in-law, it was just like, well, you'd be stupid not to do it. So you better say yes. I was like, okay. And eventually I went to my wife on a Friday. And because uh, I, I had worked out with Chris, I was like, I'm going to talk to you on that Saturday. And he's like, okay. He's like, finally, I'll get a decision. God damn it. Um, and, you know, I talked to my wife and she was just like, you know, our kids are older right now. She's like, Frank, honestly, you've been chomping at the bit to do this for years. Um, you know, of course, you, of course you should do it. Um, she's like, I'm not sure exactly what the work is going to say, but, you know, you got to do it. And uh, she's like, well, you know, because she, she knows how persistent I can be with certain things. And she was like, well, if I would have said no would you still have done this? And I said, well, you know, I would have asked you again, but honestly, you know, we're a team. So, uh, you know, we were at this whole family thing together, so I'm not going to go against you. But my wife is not the type of person that would have said no to begin with. But um, so, you know, he and I talked on that Saturday, you know, it was like late morning and he was like, holy shit, this is going to be fucking huge. He's like, and he was all excited. And then that's when we started talking about, it was like going to be the 23 year anniversary of voracious coming out when the start of this tour begins. And then I told him, I was like, you know, um, Chris, in terms of how my schedule looks and things, um, I'm going to do the first half of the tour, um, which was, you know, it's California. Um, California, the you know, the Texas area, Midwest, mm-hmm. the West Coast, down south, and then my last show was going to be the New York show at the Kingsland in Brooklyn, and then um, some other things started taking place. Then you know, I was um, I went to my work, I talked to them, and you know, they, I had to get like a special approval because it was going to be a little bit over two weeks, um, and then it got approved. And then my first practice up in New York, went back to New York. And um, at this point, it kind of fell in line with my working out because I just started working out as well. So I wanted to hit the cardio a lot. Um, so I'm hitting the cardio, you know, four to eight miles a day, um, starting back with the lifting, starting up with pull-ups. I eventually got to do, you know, I wound up dropping 40 pounds for this. Actually came out to a little bit, it actually came out to 43 pounds. Um and I got to the point where I was doing more pull-ups than I used to do in high school. I think I wound up before the tour, I think my final number was like 22. So to be able to do 22 unassisted pull-ups at the age of 46, I was really happy about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then with the, with the vocals, I, uh, you know, I would take the lyrics with me to the gym. And I have the music, the certain songs that I was learning because I knew it was going to be, it wasn't just going to be like Frank Reaney type of stuff, which I, again, I was pushing for stuff over extinction and we were almost going to do ocular. I, I wound up practicing way too many old songs because I didn't have a set list until not too long, right before the fucking tour. Huh. But um, I had been practicing pretty much the entire 
Voracious Contempt album. Actually, I got that whole album down except for Epoch because I know the band never even wants to, I know Chris never wants to even play Epoch of Barbarity ever again. Um, so I learned all the other nine songs, relearned them to relearn all my vocal patterns and all the growls I used to do. I was like, I was telling you, on, I, I, you and I spoke, I kept on cursing the old Frank Rini from 95 because it's like that motherfucker. I was like, man, so it actually made me happy. Because I was like, wow, I was really doing some pretty cool stuff back then. And for me to try and learn, relearn that type of stuff, I was like, it's actually quite difficult right now for me. <laughs> and then the Extinction stuff, I learned a few of the songs, but it turns out not, they never got any of the Extinction stuff down, which uh, Ocular was on the table, but it just didn't pan out. Um, but then when I went up for the first practice, you know, that's when I learned that Joe can't do the tour. Um, and uh, so that that's kind of set a bit of a, a wrench, a monkey wrench into the situation. And, um, Hey, you know, I, I asked my, I asked my work if I could do the whole tour and they denied it. Um, they weren't going to let me out for that whole amount of time, even though I had to leave. Um, so I was able to finagle some extra time. And then by talking to Chris and the band, we kind of worked it out. Then I was able to do more, where I was able to, after that, I was able to still do um, like New Hampshire, then all the Canadian dates, Detroit, and then the band was headlining a show off from the tour on Ohio. Ohio was going to be my last show. And um, so that was going to be special because my first show ever with IB in 94 was actually in Ohio. So all the fans and the bands and friends are still near and dear to me. And uh, so that was really, really special. But uh, again, I was doing all these different crazy vocal exercises. I was I was doing hot box vocals because, again, you know, while I practiced doing some vocals on stage, you know, hey, I got up on stage during Worm Harvester with you guys letting out a long growl with artificial brain. That was a blast. Yeah. But yeah. Um, in order to get into full shape, you know, I uh, I would like turn the heater on in my office. And again, this was getting into this. Well, this was like spring, summer. So you can imagine, you know, my, it was yeah. pretty hot already, but I would, I would put the heater on, close the door for a half hour. Then I'd go in there, do a whole set list and do all my moves. And I would come out and I remember my wife, you know, coming, you know, coming downstairs one day and she kind of like took me by surprise. Cause I'm like, you know, I didn't, you know, I don't like anybody creeping up on me. And uh, I, I, it turned out that I, while I was practicing that day, I was wearing a, a long sleeve gray shirt because I always like to wear long sleeves while I was singing too. Just to, I was trying to simulate um, a live experience with also being older, but also simulating all the different types of variables that one could encounter. And uh, she's looking at me. She's like, is everything okay? What's wrong? What's going on? I was like, no, nothing. What are you talking about? And I looked down at my gray shirt, uh, my gray shirt, which was a light gray, was now a dark gray, like completely <laughs> drenched. And I was like, oh, I've just been, you know, doing my hot box thing and doing the vocals. I was like, I'm done. She's like, well, let me guess. She's like, you can go upstairs and take a shower and then you go to bed. I was like, ah, I don't take a showers like i you know, wipe myself down i go to sh she's like you've been going to bed after doing this stuff for how long she's like that's fucking gross and 2020 time she's absolutely correct you know i would after that then i would take the showers i was like man i feel so much better what the hell was i doing um but uh um and, and so then uh uh but you know so you know again maybe skipping ahead because you know, i'm looking at the time right now but we wound up um when we got to dallas 
on at the Dallas show, we're hanging out at Mike Majewski's house, the singer. I mean, I know he's not in Kill Everything anymore, but he was, you know, with Devourment for a period of time in Kill Everything. And he's remained a friend for all these years with me. Um, we stayed at his place. We were able to, you know, rest up, shower, eat. And he was very generous with his time. Um, I got up from my nap and about to hop in the shower. And Chris is on the phone and he come, and he waves me over and he's like, Frank, you know, the day after the Ohio show, and again, this was a few weeks away, um, because again, once I get my work to allow me to be off for a little bit longer, the time off was like, it was almost doing a whole tour where, you know, Tyler from Torturous Inception was doing like the last six shows. Um, so, um, you know, he's like, you know, the, the, he's like the show after Ohio show. That's the big festival over in Chicago, in Chicago at Reggie's. He's like, that's the, the ingested tour that's merging with the bloodletting tour underneath ours. And promoters on the phone right now. And he's like, what do I need to do to have Frank Rini front internal bleeding for this fucking festival? <laughs> so that was really, my heart started going. I was like, man, it's yeah. really awesome. You know, and, and I love Chicago as well. Yeah. And there's already a bunch of fans that kept on like, you know, hit me up on Facebook uh, incessantly, Frank, the whole scene wants you to play Chicago. You got to play, you got to yeah. play. And then all these people started posting on Facebook, you know, during the tour, you know, what do we have to have Frank Greeny do this? We have to have Frank. And I was like, I was like, Oh, this is really cool. Um, so I was like, I was thinking about a lot of things. And at that point, my boss was, uh, she was on a vacation, but she was, um, you know, she was uh, in a on a cruise. So she, you know, there's no self, cell reception so she was not able to answer any of my requests i asked for one additional day off um because um my car was at chris's in new york and i would have to fly back from chicago to new york from new york get my car and drive it back to maryland it was a lot of traveling to do and i needed that monday the i think it was the third of november off and i would come back on the next day the fourth um but she wasn't getting in touch with me. And I eventually I just told Chris, I was like, I'm going to fucking do it. Let me do it. Um, and then she eventually got in touch with me like the following week and said, I, you know, the best I can do is have you come in like two hours late that day on that Monday, but you got to be back on that Monday. So on that, that, the, that, the, 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 uh, the day before was a, a, was quite a long day. You know, the band dropped me off, you know, at the airport early in the morning. Um, I took the flight to New York, Ubered to Chris's house, got my car, drove it to Maryland, and was at work the next day. Wow. Um, <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> but, you know, I was able to do that that Chicago show, and mm -hmm. it turned out that the promoter, you know, who, you know, I'd already developed, like, a bit of a friendship with, and he was just so fantastic. He was like, Frank, this has been a bucket list for me. And he had put out, like, all his promotions on the Internet. It was awesome. Um, that turned out that the day of the festival was his birthday. So, um that, you know, did a little happy birthday thing for him on stage. And that was great. And they, they fed all the bands, you know, the, the food was just fantastic off the hook. We'll forget about it. You would have been like a goddamn dump truck eating all that food. It was delicious. <laughs> um, I've, I've been to Reggie's um, in Chicago a few times, man. And I always look forward to it. You're absolutely right. I get my dump truck on every time I go there, man. Wonder, yeah. <laughs> wonderful place. Shout out to Reggie's out in Chicago, man. 
Yes. Yeah, man. Well, you you know, you talked a lot about um, these endearing stories, uh, old friends and things like that. You also talked about uh, how Mike Majewski was very generous with his time, and we thank you for being so generous with your time today. I just want to ask you um, quickly if, if just a couple of quick things before we wrap it up. I know you got things you got to do. You're a family man. We respect that. Um, all these all these people from the 90s and from the original run that you met back up with and you saw, was there anyone from the 90s that's still here kicking around the scene that you didn't enjoy seeing that you that you wish wasn't still here you don't have to name names but you know is there anything like that what, what do you mean like that that people were on the tour I, that i saw that i didn't no, want to see? just i don't know man just like just like somebody that you're like man this this person is still kicking around trying to sell that that crap that demo from 98 or you know this or there's or maybe there's like or like promoters are still pulling this shady tactic or just just something that that reminded you like like man i'm glad i didn't have to deal with this when i after i quit the band like anything like that about the scene that bothers you that you didn't necessarily look forward to jumping back in with um you know things things were a lot i I didn't know what it was going to be like and i will say by and large my experience while um it was more of a professional setting now i mean granted i was older now i'm i'm older than the sound people i was older than some of the people at the clubs that were running the club but who gives a fuck um the, the shows were on time it was very professional um it it was it, i mean you didn't get fed you got more some uh, a lot of the shows was more of a payout you get a little bit of money to eat you know um so it was a little bit different where uh years ago you go on tour you get a rider mm-hmm. and that was stuff that was agreed upon in the contract but um you know i would you know i would talk to the the sound people before the show kind of get an idea of what they do And I, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I got, I guess, <laughs> I had, a, I had a really good rapport with all the people at the clubs and all the different types of bands that we toured with, and uh, you know, even like the local bands on some of the few shows that we played. That there were local bands on like a Friday or a Saturday. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I, you know, as you get older and you get, you get a little few, few more grays, you know, in your beard, you get a little bit more wisdom behind. Do you kind of time you, you look at things in a little bit different uh, perspective? And one of my things is um, how blessed I was to be asked back in this capacity. So when you know, one of my things, you know, in the beginning, we were talking about, you know, as the band, let's have like different roles for each of us. And I said, hey, I'll be at the merch booth, you know. And so I was stuck there a lot of the times. A few times, a little bit too long. The band knew I wasn't happy because I want to shower because I'm, you know, sort like a slob from you know, doing all my little antics. Um, And, you know, it became like a funny little joke. Like every morning would be the the bruise show from Frank. I would show him all the new bruises that I attained from being in the pit and on stage and fucking (laughs) people up. Um, I I, I had a whole bunch of good ones too. Um, But uh, I was just, you know, so I always, my main focus has always been, even back in the 90s, even still to this day, has always been, number one, it's going to be about my performance and the band's performance. That's first and foremost, but it's all about the fans. 
So I will be there at the merch booth and I will be there talking to somebody for like 20 minutes where they want to do autographs. So they want to take pictures with me, which now a days, you know, like you and I were talking early on, you know, how everybody's in the, in your face with a fucking cell phone. Um, but I got used to it pretty quickly and I absolutely enjoyed it. And it was really, really cool. And, you know, there's a bunch of professional photo uh, photographers that were following us at a few of the shows. There's a lot of stuff that's been uploaded to YouTube with me with the band, a lot of live footage. Um, so it's good for people in the U.S. and internationally that were not able to see um, see me with them on this run um, that uh, are able to see that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved it. Loved well, it. I mean, it's a lot of work, a lot of work, but um, it's it's a very it a, uh, yeah. Uh, no, I was just gonna say it's a very inspirational story as um. You know, like a kind of a death metal scene, a lifer myself. You know, I just love the scene. I love the community and um, your your story about coming back and uh, you know, t- getting healthier habits, getting in shape, and and just you know, u- using the the band as a catalyst for all that. Man, it's it's a really great story, and um, we take a lot of inspiration from it. And just to wrap up uh, uh, quickly, um, do you have any future plans in death metal? I mean, do you plan do you plan on uh, rejoining IB is uh, uh, in in any time in the future in any capacity, or is that just kind of unwritten um or is or is or is or was that a one-shot deal or you know what's the deal with that well uh in terms of uh, doing guest vocals i've already done guest vocals before the tour for a band that's going to be announced shortly uh already uh that's been locked up i got a few bands that want to use me for nine uh for this year for some guest spots on their records um i was asked by another band I'm not going to name the band, but I was asked uh, by a band to uh, to join them to do touring. Um, and I I eventually turned it down because it was, again, it, you know, to go to continuously go up and practice in New York um, while, you know, I can't keep on doing that. Um, but. I'm only willing to do that for one band and that band's internal bleeding. So, um, which my wife knows, you know, so she's supportive, but in terms of what's, you know, what's on the agenda with Frank Rini with internal bleeding. Well, you know, Chris did an interview in uh, the Colorado show. Again, I I was already back home at that point. Um, But, you know, you know, the the interviewer asked him, he's like, so what's going to what's the future with Frank and internal bleeding? And Chris said it in there. um, Well, you know, we there's going to be some special shows and potentially some special tours that we want Frank on. Um, Again, Will everything's up in the air. Yeah. You know, I'm not, listen, I'm not practicing my vocals now. There's absolutely no need to, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, you know, I'm back into the work and family life. Uh, I just started back with working out again, finally. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, you know, things have been told to me, things are, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to get into all of it. Um, but, you know, do I see it potentially happening? You know, there's some talks about maybe, you know, Europe, you know, I don't know. We'll mm-hmm. have to see. Mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, I'd have to see if, you know, if, if, and when the time comes, um, I, and I don't know if it will, you know, I know what's been said to me. So I, do I, you know, I, I do foresee probably more Frank with Frank, Frank and internal bleeding stuff happening, um, as to the extent I, I could, I can't answer that. I don't know. Yeah, well, the f- the future's unwritten, Frank. And uh, you know, as you said before, um, I like I like what you said before about how you know there may have been an offer on the table for a different band, but there's only one band you're going to really put in that dedication, that work for, and that's internal bleeding. And I think mm-hmm. that speaks to the um, the, the the integrity uh, that you've demonstrated with uh, just how you've carried yourself with your family and your career and the decisions you've made, man. And we really appreciate you spending so much time with us this afternoon. Uh, we know you got a lot to deal with. It's snowing there in Baltimore, and you got your family and everything. So uh just closing out man thanks again so much for spending time on the heavy hole podcast uh you know i love you like a brother man and um oh yeah yeah man and uh hopefully we'll have you back again on the show to get your input on uh, other topics and things like that man so uh, all the best to you and your family and your career and everything else you got going on in 2019 frank yeah you guys keep in touch tom thank you for hanging out thanks for the opportunity with this thank you so much man i really appreciate your time and um sitting back and listening to you guys uh have this nice conversation and insight into everything you're going through and like will just said man the dedication is just unreal and i love it oh thank you yeah i mean really honestly you know and will and i you know we we hung out a lot on the bloodletting tournament i Trust me, when I, I mean, I had to put a limit on this when he were, he and I were you know, trying to cue this shit up. And I was like, you know, an hour and here, here we are, you know, 75 minutes later. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, no, seriously, I, I could be on the phone with you guys for another 75 minutes. I mean, honestly, that's how I could I could, you know, I have so much stuff stored up in this brain in terms of tours and different types of stories and different scene different things in the scene yeah i can go on and on and on and on and on yeah so we'll set up a part two yeah we're gonna hold you to that we're gonna hold you to that watch out for part two of the frank greeny interview man yeah boy all right the number two yeah speaking about number twos i think that's what i gotta do right now so anyway (laughs) excellent well hey thanks a lot guys you know best of luck with everything and you know keep up the support of the scene you guys are doing a great job this is awesome thanks a lot brother respect thanks man all right good night peace man frank Oh, man. Frank Rini. That was awesome. Yeah, that was a great interview, man. Uh, Thanks to Frank for uh, joining us here on The Heavy Hold tonight and uh, talking about all his history of death metal and everything that went on. And um, if you have any uh, thoughts about it, any questions you want to get Frank back, uh, tell them where they can hit us up, man. Check us out at Heavy Hold Pod on Twitter. I think we're going to have an Instagram up pretty soon. Uh, You probably just search that. You know how the the internet works, right? Yeah, just look it up, man. Come on. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. So that's it tonight. You know, stay tuned and subscribe and all that good shit. Heavy Hole Podcast. Stick with us. Bam! <laughs>